I'm going to act like I wasn't just up here five minutes ago and say good morning again. <laughs> it's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Tanner, and generally I'm not the guy who comes up and does this on Sundays. If you are uh, not, if you are new here or haven't been here that, all that often, uh, we have two other pastors, and they aren't here today, but uh, that means I'm in charge, and what I say goes, apparently, which is terrifying for me, so... Uh, uh, hopefully we get through this all right. Um, honestly, though, it's so great to see you all. Uh, good to um, just to meet together with you and uh, be encouraged with one another and to worship with one another. Uh, our band, I want to just say thank you to the band. They're not behind me anymore. They have vanished. But uh, they do such a good job every week, and uh, it's just a gift to have them. Uh, Jessica and all the rest of them, they volunteer their time. It's a great to have them. So, Welcome. Uh, this morning, to begin, I want to show you a photograph uh, that will hopefully be on the screen. Um, it is not a photograph that I took, uh, disclaimer, but uh, you might recognize this place. Some of you, uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, you've probably been to this place. This is the Western Wall in the old town of Jerusalem, and you're going to find out, just like last week, I'm not a business guy. I'm not also a history guy, so the things I'm going to tell you just take them with a grain of salt. But so this is this is a really significant place symbolically. This is a place where it basically, if you're a Christian or if you um, more so are a part of the Jewish faith, which we kind of are like cousins with the Jewish faith. We came out of the Jewish faith. You know, this is a very very important place. Um, it's a place uh, that is important, especially for the Jewish people, because of its proximity to where the original temple was in Jerusalem, okay? So the temple has, is no longer there, and in fact, the place where it was, and we're not going to go into the politics of it all, but the place where it was is not in Jewish, the Jewish people cannot even go there. So this wall is significant because it's the closest place to the old location of the temple that the Jewish people are allowed to go and pray. So for them, it's, it's very, very important because proximity to where the temple was and where God's presence was, that's what the temple represented, was the actual tangible presence of God in that place. Their proximity to that place makes it a very, very holy place. And it's uh, unfortunate, but it's, it's this wall that's not even all that close to that original location, if that makes sense but it's the holiest place that they are allowed to go and pray just because of uh, how the whole political landscape in that old town is. It's, it's kind of a mess if, if you look into it at all. But the point is they, they want to pray there. Many people go there to pray. If, you, if You've probably all likely seen a picture of this place or videos of it. It's a big symbolic place of prayer for the whole world basically. And uh, that being said, people will go there, and many of you, if you have been there, uh, even Christians will go there and spend time in prayer up against that wall. It's a symbolic place of prayer because it's as if you are as close to God's presence as possible. Even, even if you aren't able to go there, people uh, by the millions actually send prayers in. They write a prayer, and there are organizations that will print that prayer off and go, put it in the cracks of the wall. You could see there's kind of cracks in the seams there where the rock has fallen away over the years. And millions of people every year will write down prayers to God and hope that by praying at that place, their prayers can get answered. They'll put their 
prayers in the wall. They have so many people do it that every couple months or so they have to empty out all the cracks and go, and they aren't allowed to just, like, you know, dispose of those prayers. So they actually bury the prayers. It's, it's a crazy thing. The point is, uh, I want to point out what to me is a very ironic thing in that one of the most, and I would argue the most famous symbolic place of prayer in the world is a wall. Isn't that a little funny? It's a little funny to me because um, if you'll just track with me for a moment, that the most well-recognized place in the world probably to go and pray is a wall, right? This is, is funny to me because for as frustrating as the practice of prayer can be sometimes, it's, it's a little silly to me, a little ironic to me that this place where people by the millions will go to pray every year is, is a wall. And I'm not, I don't have a better idea for what we should go and pray at, I guess, maybe just anywhere, but it's ironic to me. I'm not trying to be belittling to the Jewish tradition and their idea that their closeness to the old temple is important because uh, it's clearly important to them. And it's a symbolic thing, and it's not bad to have symbols and places like that that are set aside as holy, just like this building is a holy place for us. We come here to worship God. It's set aside for that purpose. But it's a little ironic, isn't it, that it's a wall? I think as, we, as we've been talking about last week and then this week too, uh, just the practice of prayer can be a little tough as it is. And, you know, we say of people who we have a hard time having, carrying on a conversation with that it was like talking to a wall, right? And I think the practice of prayer can be like that as from time to time. And I would argue, like for most of us, it's a battle like talking to a wall just about all of the time. Some of you, you might be the exception to the rule. Um, not that there is a rule with prayer, but you, you might have a lot of success in your prayer. You might be uplifted by your life of prayer, and that's great in all. Well, I, I admire those of you in the room who feel that way. But the chances are we're all going to come to a point in our life where it's going to feel like when we try to pray to God, and we try to have that communication, we try to foster that relationship with God, it feels like we're just talking to a wall. And so we talked about last week from Romans 12, 12, the idea of being faithful in prayer and what that means. And so this week, I want to talk about um, what being faithful in prayer in just your own personal prayer life uh, should look like, and not so much what it should look like, but I just want to encourage you in your personal prayer life, okay? That's my goal. Like I said last week, the Bible in, in no way, shape, or form tries to justify that prayer is a good thing or anything like that, or, uh, and Jesus teaches us how to pray, but I'm not going to try to prove to you somehow that prayer works. I think it's assumed that it does. I'm just going to try and encourage those of us in the room who, from time to time, we feel like we're talking to a big brick wall when we say our prayers to God, okay? That's that's my goal today, is to encourage you through the scripture in that practice. Because the fact of the matter is, when praying people, you and I see no sign of an answer or, or answers to prayer that aren't quite what we thought we uh, were hoping for, it, we can become frustrated. And frustration easily gives way to discouragement. And discouragement, if we let it go on very long, usually leads to total defeat and just cutting that practice of prayer totally out of our lives. And I think for, for most of us, we're somewhere on that track at about every point in time in our lives. There might be little moments of, oh, wow, I had success over this prayer, but then it's back to the grind, isn't it? We tr we, we're never through. We never arrive in our practice of prayer. 
We never get to a point where it's like, oh, every prayer I uh, ask of God, it just happens. That's not, that's not the experience that we see from Scripture. That's not the experience many people have in just their Christian experience either. So what guidance this morning, we're going to look at what guidance and encouragement do the Scriptures have for those of us who might be growing weary in our prayer, in our personal prayer life in particular. So a couple pieces of background information. If you want, if you have a Bible, if not, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We're going to be looking in Luke uh, chapter 18, the gospel according to Luke. So a couple things about Luke and the uh, specific scripture we're going to be looking at. Number one for Luke, he, uh, by my calculation, and t- uh, you can uh, go and do your own research if you want to prove me wrong, but from my count, Luke addresses prayer more than any of the other th- uh, three gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of those four accounts of Jesus's life and his teaching, his death and resurrection, Luke addresses the idea of prayer and the practice of prayer the most. He records where Jesus talked about it more than the others. This isn't to say that Luke is like some master of prayer or something like weird like that. I'm not trying to make a point that's not there. But there seems to be a little bit more emphasis for Luke as he's watching and as he's hearing the stories about Jesus and he's, as he's talking to the disciples about what Jesus taught and things like that. He's, he's wanting to include prayer in a, in a big way throughout his gospel. In Luke's second volume work, the book of Acts, we believe the same person wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. Um, there's also an emphasis on prayer. So, so there's something that carries through for Luke that he sees the, the priority set on prayer by Jesus and then the priority set on prayer by the disciples in the early church as well. So that's something just to keep in mind. Luke also includes, as we read last week, Jesus' model prayer. It's what we often call the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to uh, make sure I told you all, I do, like, if you, if you read along with me, most of the time, most translations, they have a shortened version of his, the Lord's Prayer. So as I read it last week, I like retroactively was like, people probably didn't think I know the whole Lord's Prayer. But his, his gospel just records it a little shortened as in comparison to the version shown in the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, it's in the footnotes. I just didn't read it because it wasn't in the footnotes. So uh, he does include Jesus' model prayer and Jesus' like most clear teaching on prayer as well. So once again, Luke is seeing prayer as a key thing. Two more pieces of background info. Um, we're going to read a parable today, and it's important to know just in basic Bible reading, uh, this is something to keep in mind that... Um, Parables are not necessarily always meant to fully correlate to the reality that Jesus is going to teach and compare it to. What, it, what do I mean by that? As, you're, as, you're reading, as we're reading this parable today, if you're doing the mental math in your head and saying, okay, Jesus is comparing this story to some reality about our world and the kingdom of God, right? Jesus does that in his parables. We can't always pick up that parable and put it over ours and think everything's going to fit neat and tidy, you'll see what I mean in a few moments. Because he's trying to get the heart behind the message, and we'll find that Luke actually explains exactly what Jesus means when he's teaching this parable. But that's something to keep in mind. If you read a parable, everything in the parable is not always going to correlate directly with the reality that Jesus is teaching. Something to keep in mind. Finally, uh, something 
that is sometimes a little frustrating to me on that same line with the parables. Uh, you know, I, I kind of wish, and I bet some of you are in the same boat with me, that uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll be reading the Bible, and especially like parables or like you're in the Psalms and like the deep, like very poetic nature of some of the uh, books in the Bible as a whole. It, it can be tough to keep up and, and think like, okay, what was I supposed to get from that? And, and the fact of the matter is, in some ways, we've been given an instruction manual when uh, the people talk about doctrine things and commands and things like that. But by and large, the, book, the Bible, the book that we have been given by God to understand how to live this life and the reality of our universe, basically, is not an instruction manual. It's a story about Jesus and about the way that he has redeemed us so that we can get back in a relationship with God. And so with, with stories and things like that, and like I said, the poetry, the Psalms, things like that, there, there are stories in the Old Testament that we can read and be like, what am I supposed to get out of that at all, you know? Have you been there? I hope I'm, I don't think I'm the only one, but we don't have an instruction manual in front of us. We have a story. And so the point of, uh, the Bible in the way that it's been given to us is for us to try to wade through these things. And so that's what we're going to do this morning with this parable. We're going to try to gain an understanding in it. That's going to require us to do some thinking. The, the meaning behind it and the purpose behind it for Jesus is not always just surface level. We might need to take some time, take some days and maybe weeks and go on a long walk and think about the things that he's written in this book, okay? So let's Let's read together. We're going to read uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. In your Bible, this might be uh, subtitled, The Parable of the Persistent Widow. Other translations might have it labeled as the parable of the unrighteous judge. Uh, those will be uh, things that we'll find out about. Those are the two characters in this parable. But let's read it in its entirety together. Verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So I was just reading out of the NIV I'm going to read each line by line. We're going to go through them, just pick some things out, and then once we're done doing that, a few takeaway points at the end. Sound good? Verse 1 says, Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So we're told exactly from Luke's understanding of this teaching and from talking to the disciples, Luke knows exactly what this parable is all about. It's, it's no, there's no read, need to dig any deeper into the scripture. This is what it's about, the need to pray always and to not give up. So number one, uh, Luke is thinking that Jesus is teaching this so that we would need to pray always because it's assumed then that Jesus 
is, knows who we are, knows what we are like as people, and we have a tendency to stop praying. As we talked about last week, we have a tendency to do to stop doing things that don't give us a positive result for ourselves, don't we? We don't, we don't do a lot of things anymore, and apparently people back then didn't do a lot of things either if they didn't yield a positive result for that individual. So he knows that that's our tendency, so this story is meant to encourage us to pray always. And number two, the second objective of this parable, which seems about the same kind of thing, is to not give up, or your translation might say not to lose heart. And this is what Jesus is teaching because he knows that we might also have a tendency to quickly give up on the things we don't immediately receive that feedback on. Prayer is not going to be something for basically any one of us that we are receiving immediate feedback every single time. That's not how it works. It's just the plain reality about it. And I feel like that's important to know. I think we teach, and sometimes, obviously, with a good intention, we teach, you know, little kids in the children's area, you, if you pray, like, things will happen, and it, that's all great and fine to teach them, and it's true, right? But I think the, the tendency that we think to believe when we're get, we get taught that is that, okay, if I'm praying and then I don't get that thing to come about... I might get frustrated, and we go through that cycle of frustration, uh, discouragement, and then leaving that practice all the way behind and just cutting it out of our lives. So Jesus knows these things. Here's a parable that we should learn something about so that we might not do those things. We might not give up. Let's read verses 2 and 3. It says, There is a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. Sounds like a great guy, right? And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So here we're given the situation. This is it's crazy how how short and how condensed Jesus can make such a good point. He gives us this situation and from just the little information about these two people that we get, we know that this situation is not looking good right from the get-go, aren't we? So we have, number one, an unfair, a corrupt, probably, judge who's presiding over this case. And for that reason, we have little to no reason to think that justice is going to be brought about. We, we understand that inherently. This guy, he doesn't fear God, which for us as people who, who are trying to follow God and trying to fear God even today, we realize that's not good. And then number two, he doesn't respect people. Uh, usually if you're somebody who is in that kind of position where you're trying to weigh and balance justice, you want somebody who respects the fact that all people are made in the image of God and all of that. So they're bad. this is a bad-looking situation right from the get-go, just looking at one character. But then we get character number two, who's a widow, who in Jesus' time, and even today, it's, it's very much the same, unfortunately, but they're basically the symbol of defenselessness. They're, they're left to deal with all of their life's dealings on their own. They don't have, especially in this time where in, in legal matters like this, the men were the ones who, who dealt with everything. If, if this woman's husband was there, no matter what the situation was that brought them to court, if she had done something, her husband would have been the one to show up in court and, and, and uh, try to talk and speak on her behalf. But he, she does not have that luxury. She's all on her own. 
She's, she's left open to be exploited and taken from, and basically nobody would be there to defend her. And we know uh, from the, the Jewish law, at least the, the judge is usually supposed to be the one who is upheld and who will bring justice in situations like that. But this judge, he, he's likely corrupt, and he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't respect people. So we have little to no reason to expect justice. It's an unfortunate situation. Before we move on, notice the widow's plea to the judge. It's for justice. He, she is basically just asking him to do the bare minimum of, of his job, right? When we know what we know about judges, all they're supposed to do is weigh and balance and see that's where we get the symbol for justice. You know the scale. And, and basically she's saying, if you, if you rightly, if you just look at the scale of this situation, you're going to see that I'm innocent I just want justice. That's all she's asking for. She's not asking for anything more. She could probably, uh, if, we, if we just read into the context, it, we, she could probably be asking for far more than that because she's probably being exploited by even being there. She could probably be asking for the judge to punish the other people or for her, give me, she could be asking, give me revenge against, against my adversary in that way. Like, they should be punished for this. She's not asking for that, though. She's, she's only asking for him to do the bare minimum of his job. Let's move on. Verses 4 and 5. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, so we're getting, I, I, who knows if he said this just in his head or out loud to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, which is a weird thing to say to yourself, uh, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. So, to be expected, as we talked about at the beginning, the judge finds no compelling reason to grant this widow her plea, which is just justice. He doesn't even find that he should bring about justice in this situation, at first at least. He must have some sort of clarity because he, he's like, well, yeah, I'm just not going to do anything. I don't fear God and I don't respect people. And so, so at first, he's, at, at least for a little while, he's looking at this situation and thinking, I, I have no real reason to do this. I have no, nobody's gonna, I'm not going to gain any, any respect from anybody else, any of my peers or anything like that. I'm not going to be lifted up any higher, which was likely his one goal in life was to get as powerful as he could be. But he saw no real reason to do that. But in verse 5, it, was, it said that her pestering and her bothering of him and the, the threat of her wearing him out is what actually convinces the judge to do what's right. It's kind of funny that the verb used there for the wearing me out part is actually uh, akin to the phrase of like getting a black eye. So it's, it's meant in a metaphorical way, but he's basically saying like she's just keeps on coming after me and she's going to keep coming after me he must think and he's like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna try to step back and assess like what's best for me in this situation and if I don't grant her her plea she's going to wear me down and in a metaphorical sense he's saying like she's gonna she's gonna take care of business another way if the pleading doesn't work out, right? She's going to come and do something crazy. That's not the sense. We don't get the sense that she was actually going to physically harm this guy, even though in the NIV it says that, that she won't eventually come and attack me. It's, it's, the, it's the pestering that's wearing him down. So let's go to verse 6 through 8. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. 
Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Just for a moment, let's remember what it is we're supposed to be learning from this. It's our need to pray and to not give up. So this this parable takes on the same form as the parables we read last week. If you weren't here, uh, we read the, the verses after Jesus's explanation of the Lord's Prayer. So if you want to go back and read those, it's Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. But it takes on the same form. Last week, we read of two kind of parables. One was a man who goes to his neighbor at midnight asking for bread. And the, the neighbor said, the door's locked. My kids are in bed. I'm in bed. I'm not going to give you bread. But the neighbor kept pestering him, and eventually he gave him the bread. And the lesson was, if we can get our grumpy neighbor to give us some bread at midnight when the door's locked and they're already in bed, how much more when we ask of God will he give to us what we need? And then the second story was, how many of you fathers, if your child asks for an egg, would give them a scorpion? And how much more will your good father in heaven give to you the things that you ask? We wouldn't do those things. And so this parable takes on basically the same form. If you could get an unjust judge to grant your plea, if he could grant that plea to a widow who there's really no reason for him to feel compelled to do that, which we found out in this case, Jesus' lesson is how much more for us as children of God, if we believe in Jesus, we trust in him for our life, in our life eternal, will our heavenly father ask or answer and give us justice in our prayers and give us the prayers that we ask for? That's the lesson. How much more can we expect our good and loving and gracious Father to give to us? Will not God, who we know is loving and compassionate, do what's right is the basic lesson of this parable. In this case, it was that justice was brought about. So for us, won't justice be brought about as well? I want to note a couple things from these few verses just before we move on. Number one, the, the language of God's elect. It says in verse 7, Will not God grant justice to his elect? Uh, this, this is a confusing concept for many people. It, it was confusing for me for a long time, and Pastor Dan and Dan have helped me out to understand this concept a lot better because what it sounds like to me off, just off the cuff when I hear God's elect, I'm thinking, okay, that means God, he himself is the one choosing somewhat arbitrarily from my perspective. He's just cherry picking, you're my elect, you're my elect, you're my elect, you're my elect, you're my elect. The rest of you, sorry, but I, I picked the, these people and the rest of you, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. That is not the biblical view of the elect, okay? So let me explain. To be elect... It rather means that everyone who chooses of their free will that each and every one of us have to follow God and to submit to him and to consecrate their life to him, which basically is just meaning I, I'm submitting myself to God. I'm, I'm saying that I want him to be my Lord and Savior. Everyone who does that then becomes God's elect. He is not the one. He is setting the standard for what it means to be elect, if that makes sense. But he is not the one choosing. We have the choice. We have the free will. We have the power to become God's elect. And another way that we could say it, a thing synonymous with that, is we become God's children. 
Just like we have the choice to become God's children, though, we have the choice to deny being a part of God's family, deny being one of the elect as well. We have a part to play in this world. We have a part to play in our faith. That's why the whole invitation of the Bible, the whole invitation of the gospel is come and be a part of this. You have a choice in this, okay? So to be a part of the elect does not mean God chose you and, and everybody else that he didn't choose, uh, they're just in trouble and there's nothing they can do about it. That's not the case. It's dependent on our choices. That's a tough concept. That's one for each of us to wade through. That's one of those things where it's like, I wish we could just have like some do this and uh, you will be whatever. And it is that clear and it's that clear if we will have uh, good people to explain it to us, but it's tough to understand. It's a tough concept to understand, especially for us when we hear elect, we're, we're thinking, okay, somebody else chose when in reality he does choose, but he tells us how to be the chosen. Second thing I want to point out is the elect who cry out to him day and night. And so here, here's, here's the idea I want to uh, get across very clearly, is that this crying out happens when you are one of the elect. When you have the Spirit of God in you, when you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, the natural thing for a true disciple to do in times uh, where we find the reality of our life is I, I'm in a situation that is not just, right? Just like this widow, and it might not be the same situation, but we find ourselves in situations where we think, this, this situation, I don't deserve this, I'm innocent, whatever you're thinking about it, and the natural thing for us to do in those situations is to cry out to God. We've all probably had those situations in our lives just when things in our lives aren't going great or a bad incident happens. We're in a circumstance that we are uncomfortable and we're in pain and it could be physical, emotional, spiritual, any of those. Is to go, like, you've, you've probably been there, like, what on earth is going on, Lord? You sit back and you realize there's nothing else you can do but say, I don't know what to do, Lord. We've all been in that spot, and you do that, you cry out to God, I think, because you realize he is the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of all. He, he is the one who made a way for you, and because if you are a believer, you have that spirit within you, you know where to go with that cry. Does that make sense? You know where to go with that cry just at a natural level. It comes out of you without even knowing it. I know that we've all been there where situations are so tough that we, that's all we know to do. There, there's no more action that we can take. There's no more practical things that we can do. Uh, we have to go and we have to just cry out to God. And the, the lesson that is underneath that all is I think prayer is probably the most practical thing that we could do in those situations. So crying out is the action. It's, it's what a child does when they need something, right? Those of you who are parents in the room, you know that. And even when they don't need things sometimes, right? They cry out for them. At, and in the middle of the night when they need somebody to make sure that there's not a monster in the closet or they need to drink water. So, so both ends of the spectrum, things that are ridiculous and things that they truly might need, they cry out to you for them. That's the spirit in which we are allowed to and encouraged to come to God in prayer. You can cry out to him. We have a longing for him because we know he can answer. So there's a huge reason from all this, the lesson from this whole parable. There's a huge reason to expect justice. There's a huge reason to expect compassion and mercy 
from a righteous and loving father. And if we are his children, if we are believers, if we are doing our best to not just say we follow Jesus, but actually live like we follow Jesus, when we cry out to him, we have a huge reason to expect justice and an answer to our prayers when we cry out to him. And it's tough because at the last part it says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. And so in our minds we're thinking, okay, that means like the lesson I learned in Sunday school. I should pray and it should swiftly come and that prayer will be answered. And I think the sense is more so that when God decides it's the right time for that justice to be brought about, then it comes swiftly. Does that make sense? It's not that our prayers somehow wrestle God into a place where he, he has to answer it right away. It's, it's his choice to answer them when he wants to and when is best for our sake. So that's what granting them swiftly means. It's not that it'll come right when we ask it. It's that it'll come right when he knows it's the right time. So let's track this whole story back. Get the big picture If you cry out to God, recognizing your dependence on him, and you have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you're one of his children, you're one of his elect, right? You've seen Jesus as your Savior, and you're fully surrendered to him, and you ask things according to his will, and and sometimes you're going to have to ask again and again. We don't lose that in the parable. Then he will answer. He will answer, and when it's time for him to answer, he will answer, and he will bring about justice. He will bring about that answer swiftly. Do you see um, how we can't fully correlate this parable to the reality Jesus is trying to say? Jesus is not trying to say in this parable that God is some some unrighteous, he, that he sees how justice works, and 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 then he just doesn't bring it about. That's not, that's not the spirit that God has. That's not the character of God. And I think that's what our assumption is a lot of times. And so Jesus is trying to break that assumption. We assume that for whatever reason, in my situation, I know what is just, and I know what is right, and I know what God should do, and he should do it right now. And, and for whatever reason, we're putting on to God this, this image of being like an unjust judge. Like he, he actually doesn't respect me, he doesn't value me, he doesn't love me. And that's not true. That's not true at all, but Jesus and God and his, his attempt to do everything as he should and to be a just and righteous and compassionate God, he, he has to do things by his standard. And it's not always going to bend to the way we think things should go. So still, I know I I don't pretend to be naive that praying faithfully and not giving up is not so simple. It's not such a simple thing for us to do. It's very, very difficult. So why should we? Just a few wrap-up reasons why I think we should do our best to remain faithful in prayer. I think that we will find that our God is near if we give him the space. So just like uh, the, the Jewish people, that picture of the wall that we looked at at the beginning, they, they pray there because they think their prayers have a better chance of being answered because they're near to the presence of God. And uh, the reality is for us that if we believe in Jesus... We believe in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And now, by the way, he's praying for us. We also believe that his Holy Spirit lives within us. It's not in a temple in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of miles away from us, behind a wall that we can't even get there. I think we will find, if we would pray, 
and we would give Jesus and we give, give God the space that he is actually so near that we can hardly comprehend it. And you, we cannot comprehend it. But do we give him the space for us to realize that he's near? Do you give him the space? Do you give him the time of your day? Is it a priority to you to pray? I think if you gave time to prayer and made it a priority, we'd find he's near. James 4 says, you do not receive from God because you don't ask. And I, that's a terrible thing for me to hear. I'm thinking like, okay, so there might be things in my life that I, I would have a true desire for, but because I might not ask God, I might not give him the time and actually ask him for that desire in my heart, he might not bring it about. And do you listen to God? Do you give him the time, not just to pray to him and ask for all these things, but do you sit and just allow God to speak to you? I'm not trying to claim that if we all sat in silence for 15 minutes that we'd hear the audible voice of God. I don't think that's how it works either. But do you give him the space for you to hear from him? I think you'd find he's near if you did. He is near. If you are his follower, if you are his disciple, if you're living out your life according to the way that he wants you to, he's so near that we can't even comprehend it because he's within us. He's not far off. He's near. Be encouraged by that. Number two, we'll find he's a teacher if we're willing to learn. I think if we were to be honest with ourselves and think back to our time in school, some of us were still in school, you teenagers in here, we would probably find that the teachers that we thought were the worst were probably the ones we didn't uh, think were gonna, we were going to learn anything from, right? It's not always that the teacher was bad or they didn't know the right tactics or something like that. It was that we weren't willing to learn in their class. And so what do we learn? I think we will learn if we would give Jesus the time, if we give God the time in our prayer, that his will is a lot different than ours. And as we pray for something that we might think is a good thing to pray for, we, after a while, if you're persistent like the widow was, and you're, if you're persistent like the neighbor was, you might find that maybe this isn't according to his will. Maybe I'm asking for something that, that just isn't right. And maybe that, that prayer will find its way out of your time in prayer. Maybe you'll start praying for something else. I think prayer is one of the places, probably the most important place, where God wants to teach us. It's our desires that come before him, and he in our prayer, as they go unanswered or as they go for a long time and we just don't feel like anything's happening, that's where he wants to teach us. We'll find he's a teacher, I think, if we're willing to learn, and as we learn, our relationship with him will grow. As we see, you know, I, I'm praying for this thing that I believe is his will and I believe is a good desire in my heart. I, I will grow in relationship with him. And I think what will happen as we learn to is we'll grow in maturity, right? We'll grow in maturity whether we're 70 or 17 in this room. If we would submit ourselves to prayer and we would, we would go before God willing to learn in our prayer, not just to tell him what I want and he needs to give it to me no matter what. No, if I come and do it with a with a attitude of, I want to learn from you, Lord. I want to grow in this relationship with you, Lord. That I would definitely come to a place where I'm, I'm maybe not maturing in other areas of my life, but spiritually learning what his will is and knowing how to walk about this life like Jesus would is what we will learn. We'll become more mature Christians. Final encouragement to you, I think, that we will find he's good if we would just enter into this relationship with him. Speaking to him, 
is the primary way that we are meant to be in relationship with God. It's the primary way that he will speak to us. It's, it's one of the ways that we can know, you know, I'm hearing from God. I'm in relationship with him, knowing that I'm speaking with this God, the one who created me, the one who loves me, has care for me, mercy for me, is the primary way that we can enter in that, into that relationship with him. And that, and that comes from making a choice. We talked about the elect earlier that we have to be the ones to make a choice. We have, to, we have to look at the facts. We have to look at all of the things that we read in the Bible, all the things we've learned that we sing on Sundays, and we have to say, do I think this is worth it? And if we do think it's worth it, then, then the call is to go into a relationship with him, to speak to him, to become more like Jesus by speaking to him and maturing in that way, to become in this way more and more like a child, Come, into, come to God with, with that little line that we said last week, in Jesus' name. When we come to him in Jesus' name, we're coming to him like we are his child, right? And if, you, if you're a child, if you have that spirit about you and you are asking for the things that he wants, you're not going to feel that you need to give up when things aren't going right or when you aren't getting those answers. Kids do not care if they don't get the answer first time, do they? They're going to ask again and again and again until they know, I'm not getting it. Let's move on to something else. And that way we learn and we grow. Prayer is not a transactional thing. It's not the rubbing of the bottle to get the genie to answer your request. It's not like that. We, we, don't, we don't pray looking to get the answer so that we then will follow God again. We pray to grow in relationship with our Heavenly Father to become more blameless, more holy as we journey through this life and as we experience different things as well. Band, you can come on up. So my encouragement to you just on a practical level, I hope you, you are encouraged to know that it's my conviction that we will find Jesus, that God is near, that he's a teacher, and that he's very, very good. And we're going to sing that in the song here in just a moment. But a couple practical things if you are if you're stuck, if you're in that if you're in that loop of I'm frustrated in prayer and then I, I become discouraged in prayer and then maybe for some of you in the room you like you've just left prayer behind altogether. There's no judgment. I've been there. I think we've all been there. It's something that we all deal with. But this this is something we are meant to do. You you the requirement is that we have a relationship with God. One of the scariest things that Jesus ever taught was that some who will say they did all these great things for him someday after they pass away and that they come before Jesus will say, look, Lord, I did all these things for you, but he'll say, I never knew you. To know him and to know his goodness is the, is the goal and it's, and it's the requirement, right? We all need to know that. We all, you all need to know that. The, to know God and to know him in prayer is the requirement, Okay. A couple ways, if you are in that, stuck in that loop, that might help out. Pray a written prayer. The book of Psalms is a whole book that for basically all of uh, the history of the Jewish faith and our faith as well, the Christian faith, the Psalms have been used to guide people in their prayers. Many of them take on the form of a prayer. If you're stuck in your prayer, if you're frustrated, open up that book and let those words be your prayer to God. If you don't know what to say, pray those. 
If you don't want to do that, you can write something that might be helpful. Last week we said write down some names you could pray for. Write out a whole prayer. Write something that you, you could use just every day, every morning. I'm going to pray for this, this, and this, and this. Write it down. Make it a part of your life. Something I read that was just an encouragement to me. Uh, as, as you know, like I'm not immune from this problem of being discouraged frustrated in prayer. We, nobody is immune from that issue, but something that I read that was really helpful was that, pr- that prayer is meant to keep us from pride, and it's meant to keep us from despair. So to keep us somewhere in between those two poles, that's why we need to keep on being faithful in prayer. That's why we need to keep praying and not give up, is we don't want to be towards either one of those ends. We want to be in the middle somewhere in that relationship with God. So if you are feeling that despair in your life, the practice of prayer, which I know can be a frustrating one, it can be like talking to a wall, is, is such a great antidote to that. We can't rely on the feeling of, oh, it's uh, prayer getting answered every time, but we can try. We can keep going. We can keep pestering. We can keep going after God and asking for those things as long as we know it is right. And then if you are feeling pride in there, if you feel like I've got, I've got it all together, uh, spoiler alert, you don't. Uh, you're going to find out soon uh, that something is going to come into your life and you'll realize it's not so great. And in those times, if, you, if you're on the cusp of that, if you're feeling like, yeah, I guess I kind of have been relying on just my own power, go into prayer. There's nothing more uh, humility bringing than telling somebody and telling the Lord of all that you need some help. So keep yourself from despair and from pride, and let's try to be people who are faithful in prayer. Let's sing together, and then we'll pray to close.